In the 1960s, America went through what has since been labeled a sexual revolution. America had a moral shift where practices which had for centuries been seen as wrong were now being accepted. So the 60s and 70s saw a skyrocket of divorce, adultery, abortion, and homosexuality. And that was merely just 50 years ago now. And one can only imagine what America will be like 200 years from now. Actually, I want you to do that. I want you to imagine a society or a nation which had a sexual revolution 250 years ago. And what would that society be like? Now all, door, all doors are open, no holds barred. What, what would that society be like? Well, we can imagine marriage is still around, but adultery is accepted. Newlyweds practice monogamy for a little while when they're trying to have kids, but otherwise they have many other partners. Divorce is even more common. It's people getting divorced for any old reason. Promiscuity is normal. It's almost like a game to see how many partners you can have. Pornography is everywhere. It's accepted in public now. You can find it as wall art in popular homes. Relatedly, public nudity is allowed. No one really cares. Male, female, it doesn't bother people anymore. Prostitution, it's legal. It's widespread. In fact, it's big business. Homosexuality, of course, is considered normal. Not everyone is gay, but it's considered pretty unremarkable that people are, that people of the same sex are attracted to one another. And likewise, normal is transgenderism. Effeminate men seek to look and act like women, and and that's okay, and vice versa. Even now in this society, pedophilia has a place. It's not fully embraced, but among the rich and the elite, they, they get away with it. People turn the other eye. Children of privilege, though, wear special garments to mark them as off limits. Some people in this society are still religious, but now even religion has been sexualized where sexual deeds are performed in the worship of God. In fact, churches or temples have now become gathering places for prostitutes, like their home base. Incest is A-OK in this culture because you're just free to love whoever you want to love, so that includes family members. Rape is still frowned upon, but it's so common that it's basically normal. And a few people will even get away with bestiality. Now, I hope that as you envision such a society, you were shocked and appalled and repulsed. You should be by that description. To think that any nation could get that corrupt is pretty mind-boggling. Could America really get that bad in 200 years? But what if I told you that the society I just described, everything I just said, was actually real, that that was a real society, that that society actually once existed. They did all those things I just said, because it did. You see, I didn't just depict some imaginary society. Everything I said was a true-to-life description of life in ancient Rome. Yes, that's right. The Romans, they eventually gave into every sexual immorality imaginable from pornography to homosexuality to pedophilia, everything I said. It was at one point in the Roman Empire. And it's amazing to think that any society could get that bad. But really, given the fallenness of the human heart, it's, it's actually not that surprising. In fact, I'd be surprised in America if it took another 200 years to get that far. A morality battle is taking place right now in our country. Our culture has subscribed to basic Judeo-Christian values for centuries by the grace of God, but that tide is changing now. Our culture has now already accepted adultery. It's fine. Divorce for any reason. It's fine. Promiscuity is a virtue, while purity and monogamy are vices. Pornography is ubiquitous. Incest, polygamy, pedophilia, and bestiality are still off limits for now, but homosexuality and transgenderism have gone mainstream. And don't think it will stop there, though. When the door of sexual license is opened, it's not so easily closed. The main argument from pro-gay rights activists today is that people, they should just be free to love whomever they want to love. And also now they claim it's a genetic issue. Homosexuals have no choice. They're born that way. But with that logic, liberals cannot deny the polygamist, who has five consenting wives, Because aren't they free to just love whomever they want to love too? 
And so it's really not surprising to hear that this past Valentine's Day 2015, the world saw its first three-person gay marriage in Thailand. Additionally, how long until pedophiles start claiming that they're born that way too? They can't help it. They can't change. It's in their DNA. So who are you to say they're wrong? They're, they're just born that way. Especially if they find some consenting child who's also born with a pedophile gene. Is it wrong? See, when society opens these doors, it's not so, they're not so easily closed. But what is the church's response to all this? What, what should we do? Now, at the very least, we must stand for the truth, which includes morality as defined by God. And granted, the world might not like that truth. They might deny it, but we cannot deny it. They might not like us for it. They might hate us for it. They may even start to persecute us for it because they don't want their consciences being pricked every so often. But we still have to stand for the truth because it would be far worse for us to deny our God and our faith. So the church must stand for the truth and represent the truth and share the truth in the face of a changing culture. But along those lines, we must also offer great hope to the decaying world. By standing for the truth, we are still wielding the power of God for salvation, the gospel. The gospel can still change lives, even in the midst of overwhelming darkness. Just, just remember, Christianity was birthed in the ancient Roman Empire. As the gospel spread, and with it God's holy morality, it stood in stark contrast to the extremely dark and depraved and corrupt Roman culture. And of course, the Romans hated the Christians for it. Like John 3 says, the darkness will always hate the light. And they killed lots of Christians. Thousands of Christians were killed in, in persecution. But this didn't stop the spread of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. More and more people became his followers despite the danger. And soon, or eventually, society changed. And the same thing can still happen in America, which isn't even that bad yet. But it's not going to happen through the government or political activism. It will only happen through the spread of the gospel once more. And so that is our ultimate response to whatever darkness arises. We have to just stand for the truth and preach the gospel until our dying breath. That is the world's only hope from escaping the destruction of their own ways. Now, all that being said, what does the church do about this specific issue today of homosexuality? And that is our topic for today. past couple Sundays we had a little Q&A time and this was one of the questions and I told you it was such a big, important, and relevant issue that I'd spend all of our time today studying this and that's what we're going to do. Like I said, that's the battleground for our day. So what do we make specifically of this one issue of homosexuality? The message coming from media is very clear. Homosexuality is not sinful. It's, it's normal. It's right. It's fine. They're consenting adults. It's not wrong for people of the same sex to love one another, have relations, marry one another. Even so, homosexuals claim they have no control over their sexual orientation. They say they're, they're born that way. They can't help it. They can't stop being gay even if they wanted to. It's just it's part of their DNA. So how can we brand them immoral for doing something they have no control over? As a result, the liberal media brings down a firestorm on anyone who voices any other opinion or belief, labeling such a person as an intolerant bigot. All of this social pressure confuses Christians in the church. They don't know what to make of the issue. They don't know how to respond to homosexuals who keep claiming that they're born that way. Some Christians just want to dig their head in the sand. Some start to doubt what the Bible says. Some just fully give up and just accept homosexuality in the church. No big deal. Most, they're just confused. They, they believe it's wrong, but they don't know what to say or make of the issue or respond. Needless to say, it's a relevant issue. And at the very least, the church needs clarity and conviction on what the Bible says about homosexuality. And that's what we're going to try and provide today. We want to be, at the very least, crystal clear as to what God thinks about the issue. So at least we know where we stand, biblically. And that's what we need to do. We need to stand, just stand firm for the faith. We need to represent God's truth in love to the world, 
offering them real hope and change and life. So one of our main goals today is just to find out what the Bible says about homosexuality. And as a little bonus, because it's so relevant, we're also going to spend a little time finding out what science says about homosexuality. We find that informative as well. And all this is so that you might be better equipped to understand and then respond to this issue. And we're going to do that as well. We're going to cover how exactly the church should respond to this new cultural climate. And by no means do we have time to say everything that there is to say, but hopefully with the time we have, we'll give you a firm footing for dealing with homosexuality in our culture today, and that that confronts the church. So to keep things simple, a little three-point outline for you to follow along. Number one, what the Bible says about homosexuality. Number two, what science says about homosexuality. And number three, how the church should respond. That's it. So let's start with number one. What the Bible says about homosexuality. Now first things first, is the Bible even clear on homosexuality? Does it even really talk about it? Is it is really that serious? Is it really a sin? Well, in this case, the Bible is crystal clear. And that ever homosexuality is mentioned, it is outright forbidden or condemned and described as a serious sin. It starts in Genesis 19, the first mention, with the destruction of Sodom. You remember the story? Two angels took the appearance of men and they visited Lot in Sodom. Lot invited them to his home, but things took a little turn. Genesis 19, verse 4 says, Before they laid down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, surrounded the house, both young and old, all the people from every quarter. And they called to Lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may have relations with them. And the context makes it pretty obvious. This is talking about homosexual relations, especially given the fact that the men of the city, they refused to have sexual relations with Lot's daughters, verses 7 and 8. They just wanted the men. This mob of men, they were so driven by their desires that they started to press in. They're going to break down the door, get into this house. That's when the two angels intervened. They pulled Lot inside, and verse 11 says... They struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they wearied themselves trying to find the doorway. So the the angels brought Lot inside. They struck all the guys with blindness. But you know what's so amazing and disturbing? That this mob of men and boys was so adamant about getting to these two men that even after they were struck with blindness, they were still trying to find the door. They didn't like go home. They just were still trying to get in. Nothing would stop their desires, which had enslaved them. The people of Sodom were in general extremely wicked and vile, but this was like the straw that broke the camel's back. And right after this, God pronounced and poured out his judgment by totally annihilating Sodom and Gomorrah. There were no survivors except Lot and his family. And the seriousness of this sexual sin is evidenced by the gravity of the judgment poured out upon it. So it's pretty clear from this first account what God thinks of homosexuality. And if you're you're not that clear, Jude in the New Testament, he uses the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah as the chief example of God's wrath being poured out on gross sexual immorality. Jude, verse 7 says, he talks about just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. He highlights them as the chief examples of what God thinks about these sins and what he's going to do about them, namely judgment. God may delay his judgment, but he will judge all wickedness, and that includes homosexuality. Equally clear is God's law given to Israel. We read in Leviticus chapter 18, verse 22. Simple command, it says, You shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It is an abomination. It's a very clear prohibition, Leviticus 18:22. In the context, this command comes right after prohibitions against incest, adultery, and child sacrifice. And it comes right before a prohibition against bestiality. 
That kind of tells you what category God places homosexuality. It is an extreme sexual sin. And again, its seriousness is evidenced by the penalty that it merits. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 13, says, If there is a man who lies with a male as those who lie with a woman, both of them have committed a a detestable act, they shall surely be put to death. Their blood guiltiness is upon them. Homosexuality in the Old Testament, along with adultery and some other things, merited the death penalty. That's how holy God is, and that's how serious of an offense this was in Israel's theocratic government. Now you turn in the New Testament, and the picture is just as clear. Every mention, it is a serious sin, and it is condemned. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8-10, through 10, Paul says, Verse 8, but we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. And here, homosexuals are specifically called out in a list of of vices. And notice, this sin comes right after murder, right before kidnapping. And biblically, homosexuality is not some innocent act of love. It is before God just morally wrong and wicked. Like Paul said, such laws are meant for the ungodly, the sinners, the unholy, the profane. Biblically, homosexuality is sinful and unholy before God. Now, the New Testament does not carry forward the death penalty for homosexuality because Israel's theocracy is over. But homosexuality is still condemned and it is revealed that it comes with a penalty even worse than death. A critical passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 10 says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor, the, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And two special categories are mentioned in this list. First comes the word malakos in Greek, translated effeminate. And that refers to the passive homosexual partner that may be transgender or transvestite. The second word is arsenokoites, translated homosexual. And that refers to the dominant partner in a homosexual relationship. The Bible mentions both. The Bible condemns both. Male, female, doesn't matter. They're both wrong. And the penalty, it's worse than physical death. He says the penalty is a permanent spiritual death. Such people, verses 9 through 10, says they will not inherit the kingdom of God. People who live these lives, practice these things, will be barred from heaven. But this is where some good news comes in. Does the Bible condemn homosexuality? Yes, very clearly. But you have to keep in mind, the Bible does not discriminate. The Bible condemns everyone for every sin. The Bible condemns lust, anger, murder, adultery, greed, gossip. And we're all covered. Every person stands condemned for any and every sin because we all fall short of the glory of God. But God can redeem such fallen sinners from the power and the penalty of sin. He can make them new, and he does that through his son, Jesus Christ, who gave himself on the cross. And that includes homosexuals. After those two lists, those two verses of those serious sins, those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the next verse, verse 11, says, Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. And that's the good news. That all of us, no matter our sin, can be justified or made right with God not through our own goodness or our own effort, but simply on the basis of our faith in Christ 
and his finished work on the cross. Anyone can be redeemed, no matter what the sin. Of course, paramount here in verse 11 is the word were. He says, such were some of you, speaking to Christians in the church in Corinth. Turning to Christ in faith for forgiveness necessitates turning away from your sin. And so for homosexuals, that would include homosexuality. This verse makes perfectly clear that being a homosexual and being a Christian are mutually exclusive. Now granted, there are true Christians who are actively fighting homosexual temptation, and that's, that's good, that's great. But the person who is still engaging in a homosexual lifestyle, still identifies themselves as such, cannot follow Jesus. Because these are two totally opposite paths in opposite directions. You can't follow your sin and follow Jesus at the same time. That's, that's the opposite of discipleship. That's not how it works. You can't have it both ways. Now, this doesn't stop many self-deceived people from thinking they can have it both ways. And just this past week, the PCUSA, the Presbyterian Church USA, became the largest Protestant denomination to accept gay marriage. But this is merely a sure way to identify an apostate church. There's one more critical passage to look at now, and that's in Romans chapter 1. Go ahead and turn there if you're following along. This is a big one. It starts off with Paul saying in verse 16 that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. But wait, why, why do people need salvation? Well, because, verse 18, because of unrighteousness. All people are ungodly and suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now, here's the thing. Even though mankind has fallen, God left himself with a witness. God gave man an external witness, that is nature, which testifies of, to the power of God and the presence of God. God also left an internal witness, and that is your conscience, which testifies of the morality of God, right from wrong. But what do people do? They suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness. They deny God's witnesses, and then they exchange the glory of God for an idol, says Romans 1, as you keep reading. Idolatry is man's deepest problem. But don't think of idolatry as just worshiping some little wooden figurine. Idolatry is where you love and you worship and you live for anything more than God. And it really can be anything from a wooden statue to money to sex to self. Man's greatest offense before God is exchanging his glory for for something else, anything else. And that's what Paul talks about in verses 18 through 23. Such idolatry, though, such a rejection of God and his truth, comes with some serious consequences. And verses 24 through 32 describe these consequences. Three times you have this phrase, God gave them over. God gave them over. God gave them over. As people reject God and his truth, his morality, sometimes God judges them by giving them over. To what? Giving them over to what? To their own sin. Verses 24, 25, Romans 1 says, Therefore, after all that, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. You see, God, through his revelation, there's a general revelation, a special revelation in the Bible, he's, it's like he's testifying to all people, don't do that. Don't go that way. Don't go after your sin. It, it will harm you. It will kill you. Instead, you need, you need me. You need to seek me. It's like what God said to Abel in Genesis 4. He said, your sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. He's trying to keep us away from sin. It's so bad for us. He's trying to ward us off from sin and return us to him. But some people don't listen. And as they exchange the truth of God for a lie, and they suppress their own consciences, 
Sometimes, in judgment, God hands them over. He's warned people, don't consume your sin. Don't, don't eat that. It's not good for you. It will kill you. But as they reject him, so he lets them have at it. He says, okay, just go, go for it. Eat what you want. And his restraining grace is removed. And as a result, some people are totally given over to the lust of their heart. And then they're left to bear the consequences of those sins, both in this life and the next. And now, notice this. Verse 26, homosexuality is listed as the main example of one of these darker sins that comes as a form of judgment. This is where God has lifted all of his restraint from people. And so verse 26 says, continuing, For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the women and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And we learn from this final passage that not only is homosexuality wrong, it also comes as a form of God's passive judgment whereby he stops restraining people from their sin and he leaves them to their desires. And in the, in the end, their own appetites, their, their sinful desires, the lust of the flesh, consume them and kill them. There's this picture, you may have seen it, from Florida, I have one of these massive 16-foot pythons in the Everglades, and it had, it had eaten an alligator. And they, get, they can do that. They're that big. But this snake bit off more than it could chew, and so the alligator was dead, but it still burst from the side of the belly of the snake, and it killed the snake. And that's the perfect picture of what Romans 1 is talking about. God is telling you, don't give in to your sinful appetite. Don't consume that. It will harm you. It will kill you. Listen. Turn. But as people reject God, they reject his truth. So sometimes he says, okay, have at it. And people, their sinful appetites take over. They just consume all the sin they can and it, it, it consumes them. And they end up paying in the end. And homosexuality is given as the chief example of such a consuming and deadly appetite of the lust of the flesh. Also realize Romans 1, it makes clear why homosexuality is wrong. Twice, Paul says, for men and for women, that it is unnatural. It is unnatural. And here, Paul is invoking the order of creation from Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis 1 and 2 forms a foundation for this whole homosexuality issue. Because that's where we have God's own blueprint for human sexuality. It's very clear. God, on purpose, created humans to have two distinct forms, male and female. And if God really wanted to, he could have made us have all one gender. We could have reproduced asexually. He could have done it. But he chose to make us male and female, both in his image. But God didn't stop there. He also designed these two genders to come together as one. Immediately after creating male and female, God also created the institution of marriage where one male and one female would come together exclusively and they form one flesh. Genesis 2.24 says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. God designed these two genders to be equal yet distinct. They have different forms, different functions. Male and female can operate alone, but they are made to fit together physically, emotionally, spiritually, many other ways, just perfectly come together, complement one another in marriage. It's where the two really become one. And of course, sexuality fits into this. God created human sexuality partly for reproduction, but also partly to seal this covenant between man and wife. Sexuality was designed to be an expression of love and loyalty between one man and one woman. And in this regard, inside the covenant of marriage, it's great. It's a good and right thing. 
But after man's fall into sin in Genesis 3 and his rebellion against God and God's will, man started taking his sexuality outside of the covenant of marriage, outside of God's bounds. And this is a perversion of God's design. It's a violation of God's will. That's the definition of sin. But that is the bent of man's fallen nature now to distort that which God has made as good. And that from the beginning, mankind has been distorting sexuality. That's why adultery, promiscuity, premarital sex are all wrong and sinful. Because they're taking sexuality outside of marriage. And that's also why pedophilia, bestiality, polygamy, and homosexuality are wrong and sinful because they're taking sexuality with the wrong partner. So that's why Paul rightly identifies homosexuality as against nature, meaning God's created order of things for human beings. Sexuality was designed for one man and one woman within the covenant of marriage. And anything else goes against God's will, and that's just the definition of sin. So we'll kind of leave it at there. Point number one, what the Bible says about homosexuality, is it clear? It's very clear. At the very least, it's clear. It is against God's will. It's sin. It's universally condemned. Some today in the pro-gay movement, they desperately try and redefine some words and reinterpret some passages, but really just grasping at straws. You saw it for yourself. It's a pretty clear testimony. In fact, it's so clear that a lot of people today, they're just abandoning the Bible altogether, which is why we're seeing renewed attacks on the authority, the sufficiency, and the inerrancy of Scripture. But that's nothing new. Satan has been doing that since the Garden of Eden. Now, going back to Romans 1, it helps us bridge to our next issue, and that is the origins of homosexuality. The implication from Romans 1 is also clear that homosexuals are made, not born. Homosexuals are made, not born. Homosexuality is just another sin that develops in people with hardened, depraved hearts that have been given over to unchecked sin. Like all behavior, though, it's ultimately a choice, and God will hold people accountable for their choices. But this totally flies in the face of the main argument coming from the media and pro-gay activists today, namely that homosexuals, they're born that way. They, they claim they, they don't have a choice. They can't stop being homosexual even if they wanted to. They claim it's outright genetic. They're programmed to be that way. It's in their DNA. Now, of course, if that's true, they believe it precludes them from being morally responsible for being gay. I mean, can, how can you judge them for being gay if they're really born that way? That would be like judging someone for having blue eyes or dark skin or red hair. So what do we make of this claim? In a sense, according to Scripture, hey, we can understand the idea of being born sinful from birth. Hey, we're all born sinful and depraved from birth. We get that, but, but really that's more a corruption of our hearts, our soul, our inner person, not really our genetics. So are homosexuals really genetically hardwired? Has science really proven this. And here, even though this is not our goal on Sunday mornings to talk about science, a little bonus, number two, what science says about homosexuality? It's it's so relevant, I wanted to include this, what science says about homosexuality. As Christians, we know our highest authority is the Word of God. But the Word of God will never contradict true science. Now, I hope you know all scientific data is neutral. It must be interpreted. But we expect science to fit Scripture since God is the author of both. And it does. But is this homosexuality issue, is this like an exception? Well, back in 1993, scientists said they were hot on the trail of the gay gene. And Newsweek magazine ran a cover that said, gay gene, question mark. But most people ignored the question mark and just took it as an assertion that they had found a gay gene. And today, liberal media is dominated by this claim that homosexuality is genetic and any critic is just silenced and shamed, being intolerant. And they claim to stand on the high ground of scientific proof. But, but wait a second, what was the result of all those studies? Did they ever actually find that gay gene? 
Question mark. Well, the answer is no. The next time someone tells you that homosexuality is genetic, tell them to prove it. Challenge them to find any study that demonstrates the link between genetics and homosexuality. Just, just challenge them. Don't let them get away with the, the propaganda. In our culture, if you say something enough on TV, it becomes true. But don't, don't, don't let people just say that. Say, say, well, show me, prove it. The burden of proof is on them. And to the contrary, what if I told you that science has actually conclusively proven that homosexuality is not caused by genetics? Would you be surprised? That part definitely isn't publicized, right? That's not making the cover of any magazine. And let me tell you a little bit about it. There have been several studies over the past 20 years. So far, no biological link has been found with homosexuality. Nothing in the brain, nothing in the hormones, no real differences. On top of that, they never found a gay gene. The most revealing of all is twin studies. Twin studies. It's where you take some twins and you study them. And I've done lots of these. You've got different types of twins. There's identical twins. It's called monozygotic twins. It just means two brothers, two sisters. They have 100% identical DNA. So exact copy of DNA. Identical twins. They also study fraternal twins, normal siblings, even adopted siblings who may only be 5% genetically similar. But this study looked for twins where one of the siblings was homosexual and they wanted to study the concordance rate at which the other became homosexual as well. And now here's the thing. Think about this. The claim today is that homosexuals have a gay gene. It makes them homosexual. They don't have a choice. It's in their DNA and they just they have to become homosexual. They don't have a choice. Now, if that's the case, think about these identical twins. There's two people on the planet with 100% identical DNA. That means if one turns out gay, the other has to turn out gay as well, if homosexuality is caused by genetics. Because you don't have a choice. Like You're coded that way, and that's just how it is. So if that's true then we would expect to see a 100% concordance rate among identical twins. One has turned out gay, then every time the other one has to be gay as well, if it's purely genetic, right? Do you understand? Yet, a 1991 study found only a 52% concordance rate. A 2000 study found only a 30% concordance rate. And a 2002 study showed only a 6.7% concordance rate. And if you don't understand, that's just proof positive that homosexuality is not caused by genetics. And to us, that's not surprising because DNA doesn't control our behavior. Human behavior, it's so complex. It is not reduced to a gene that you flip on and off. It's a matter of the heart and the soul, your inner person, not biology. And science, what do you know, actually confirms homosexuality is not caused by genetics. Now, might there be some genetic influence for homosexuality? Might maybe some genetic disposition or leanings toward homosexuality? Well, that, that's possible. They have found nothing, but it's possible in the future. But listen, by no means is homosexuality something like eye color, where you just you have no choice in the matter. Because at the end of the day, we're dealing with human behavior, and you always have a choice. It is a matter of the will. And even if someday scientists find some genetic or biological influence for homosexuality, that still doesn't remove personal responsibility for a person's choices and actions. Because look, what if they find a gene for pedophiles? Does that make it okay? Would you say it's okay? No. What if they find a gene for murderers? Does that make it okay? No. And look, I'm pretty sure every guy could say they're hardwired to be promiscuous, but does that make adultery okay? No. You, you get the drift. Biology is not destiny. And people, all people are created by God as morally responsible creatures. You can't skirt around the issue of morality just because you think you're born a certain way, even though, just to be clear, right now, there's no confirmed biological or genetic link to homosexuality. 
And to the contrary, these twin studies prove conclusively that homosexuality is not caused by genetics alone. If someday some indirect link is found, that still doesn't remove people from the personal responsibility uh, for their morality. If you really want to dig into what causes homosexuality in a uh, worldly sense, then the real research points to psychological, environmental, and social factors. For instance, adopted brothers from the twin studies that share very little genetic similarity had an 11% concordance rate. That's five times higher than society in general. That just goes to show that a child's upbringing, environment, and experiences play a huge role in shaping their identity. And other studies point to fatherlessness, sexual abuse, and influence from peers as giving rise to homosexuality. You certainly see the environmental factor on display when it comes to prison. Because heterosexual men go into prison, they commit homosexual acts, and for them it's not genetic. That's clearly circumstantial. That's just a good example, though. Now, I want to point out this, though, that for homosexuals, I understand it sure feels natural, and that's why they say it, like it feels they were born that way, and I understand that. It feels to them they were born gay because they don't ever remember choosing to be gay. But look, that's just how it is with all sin. That's nothing new. Think about an angry person. This guy is always angry. and Did he just one day wake up and say, hey, from now on I am choosing to be angry and bitter all the time? No one does that. No, rather they failed to deal with their sin. They edged more and more into darkness. Maybe some bad things happened to them and they became angry. And now it feels very natural. It's just part of them. Their move into anger may be unintentional. It may go unnoticed. But that doesn't make them any less responsible. And that doesn't mean they can't change. Homosexuality is like all sin in the sense that it is a reflection of a fallen, rebellious, corrupt human heart. Not everyone will go that far in their sin, but we don't really need any special explanations for why it happens. It's just part of our sin condition. It's just another expression of the sin problem in general. And because of this, because we're actually dealing with just another sin issue, the church is actually uniquely equipped to help people who are struggling with their sin like no one else can. And this leads to number three, finally, final point we'll make. How the church should respond. How the church should respond. In a nutshell, boils down to this. Speak the truth in love. Speak the truth in love. Whereas unbelievers have suppressed the truth of God and unrighteousness, we who follow God must not do so. First and foremost, foremost, we must stand for the truth and speak the truth. That means we, we just cannot approve of or condone homosexuality. We can't call sin not sin. We just can't do that. To do so would be to deny God, his word, our very faith. And granted, it's becoming increasingly unpopular to label homosexuality as sin and wrong, but nobody said doing what is right is going to be popular and easy. And the church may face persecution once again over this issue. And certainly that is the agenda of the militant wing of homosexuality. And for the past 200 years, Christians have been forced with this label of being anti-intellectual because we don't go the way of the world. And now in the future, we may also be forced to bear the label of immoral. We might be called immoral because we don't support homosexuality. But if that's the case, all we can do is hold fast the faith and stand firm, trusting God for strength and courage. He will right all wrongs in the end. And he'll, he'll judge. Leave that to him. We just trust him. But like Isaiah 5.20 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness. That's the way our, our world is going, and we, we may not be able to stop it, but God will right all those wrongs in the end. And even still, though, in the face of all this mounting pressure, our role as individual Christians is not to sit as judge, jury, and executioner over others. It is right to warn all people that their sin is going to bring a judgment. In fact, we must warn all people, homosexuals included, that all sin 
is leading you to a judgment. You need to get right with God and turn. But I trust you understand that this type of self-righteous judgmentalism should not be found among the church. True believers should always carry themselves with an aura of humility, even when dealing with great sins in the world, because we realize the only reason we're different or that we're saved is just the grace of God. That's it. We're not special. It's just God's grace in our life. And we're no different. We, too, were once lost, depraved sinners, just like everyone else, yet God saved us. So, like, in the end, we'll, we'll leave the judging to him. He's righteous. He'll do what is right. But for now, our job is to offer real hope and peace and even change to those who are willing to listen to all the nations, but that includes homosexuals. And this is part of the truth which we must speak in love. And yes, we are to be loving to homosexuals. We don't affirm their choices or their lifestyle. We can't approve of their sin, but we can treat all people with dignity, respect, a holy love, and we must. And really the the greatest thing we can do and the most loving thing we can do is tell them the good news of Jesus Christ. That is our ultimate response Now, I I know some homosexuals, they're so militant, they won't listen to anyone who opposes them. They just label everyone as intolerant who doesn't believe like they believe. But others, they're hurting, they're depressed, they're struggling, and only the church can offer real hope. The good news is that they, they can be changed. They are not in a fate of genetics where they have no choice. But they can be changed. They can be forgiven for all of their sins. Homosexuality is not the unforgivable sin. Jesus died for that too. And and everyone can be cleansed and forgiven and redeemed. Step one for homosexuals is no different than step one for any sinner. And that is to see their sin. They must recognize that that they're sinners in need of grace. And we, we can't skip this step. All sinners have to realize that the way you're living, the things you're doing, that they're wrong before your God and your Creator. And they're worthy of a judgment. And so they and all people must be willing to forsake their sin. And then they must be told of Jesus, the Son of God, that the Christ, the Messiah, who came to earth as God in flesh, lived a perfect life, but he, he died to redeem such fallen lost creatures. He bore the penalty that they deserved for their sins. Jesus died on the cross. He rose from the dead. He established victory over sin and death. And now anyone, by by turning from your sins, whatever they might be, and turning to Christ in faith, you can be forgiven of everything and redeemed and granted eternal life. Jesus even promises to make you new, to make you born again, give you new life, new desires. It's a change where you want to live for God and his will now. And here too, homosexuals must embrace new life in Christ. They have to realize that their identity is not actually wrapped up in their sexuality, but in Christ. And this results in a real denial of all sexual sin and a desire to live righteously before God. Titus 2 verses 11 and 12 says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. But the new birth, that's the only hope they have or any of us have, is new life in Christ. That's the answer for all of us. Homosexuals, really no different. God can change anyone. The gospel is still the power of God for salvation to anyone who believes. And the result is just a new life, a life of of joy and peace, forgiveness, and freedom from sin. But you must truly give your life to Christ, and that includes forsaking all evil ways. This is the only way individuals can be changed, and that's the only way societies can be changed. God must work through the gospel. We must work to share it. So ultimately, the church's response is to speak the truth in love, to share the gospel in love wherever we go. We can't sacrifice the truth. We can't sacrifice love. But the world needs to know there's a better way. 
There's a way of peace. There's a way of redemption. There's a way of Christ. It's a way of life. And no, it's not too late for America. If the gospel was able to flourish and transform ancient Rome, then it's not too late for us. But the church must not forsake God and his truth, his morality, his gospel. Some churches, some denominations, or I'll say so-called churches, they've already forsaken it all. They've thrown it all away. and they, They've become just like the world. They're not indistinguishable from the world as they've thrown in the towel of God and his truth. But what will you do? And I encourage you, as Scripture does, to hold fast the faith, to stand firm, and then let loose the power of God for salvation for all people, and that is the gospel. Hebrews 10.23 says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And that is our response. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you for this time in the Word. As always, your Word is clear, and it brings clarity to real issues that confront us in life. We live in a fallen world that produces fallen behavior. And we too, once were just as fallen and once just as depraved, only by your grace and kindness and mercy and love did you save us and transform us. We thank you for that. Even still, we're, we're sinners, so we are humbled by your grace. But at the same time, Lord, we have to stand where you stand. And that is for the truth, it is for righteousness, and it's against evil and wicked deeds. And so we will stand for that truth. We thank you for convicting us and showing it to us clearly. But at the same time, Lord, we are called to love even our enemy, even our, our neighbor, of course, but all people. May we show people a love, a, a patience, a respect. But the greatest love we can show is just telling them about your son. Lord, that's, that's how you showed us love, by sending your son to die for all of our sins, including homosexuality but any can be forgiven and changed and restored and redeemed and and just enjoy a new life and eternal life if they see their sin and turn from it and embrace christ follow him to, to go where he goes may that be something we all do for those of us who have we 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 exalt you and thank you let me just pray now for strength and courage that we would be strong and courageous like you told joshua our culture is changing it is getting darker Dark times may come upon us again, but give us strength and courage to stand firm, to hold fast to faith, to speak the truth in love, because we know your gospel can and will still change lives and even societies. Your will be done, but give us grace all the more. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.